Support for this episode comes from SaneBox. Is email a soul-crushing distraction? If so, then you need SaneBox. SaneBox's artificial intelligence monitors your inbox. Automatically unimportant email is moved to your Sane Later folder. And all that's left is the important stuff and your smiles. If you know how email folders work, then you know how SaneBox works. Find an email in the wrong folder? Just move it. Nothing to learn, nothing to install, SaneBox works directly with every single email server or service that has ever been created. And as a luxury item listener, you get a free two-week trial and a $25 credit by visiting SaneBox.com luxury today. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot slash luxury. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. They say diamonds are forever, but what about ones grown in labs? Lab diamonds are entirely man-made and have the same physical and chemical properties as mine ones. Recently, lab-grown diamonds have gained legitimacy as bigger companies like De Beers and Pandora began selling them. Both the lab-grown and mining industries are looking to capture consumers as the global economic recovery sparks a rebound in luxury demand. But are luxury consumers ready to ditch their Bulgari, Cartier, and Harry Winston natural diamond jewelry for lab-grown counterparts? One San Francisco-based lab-grown diamond startup, Diamond Foundry, seems to think so. Diamond Foundry is backed by various Silicon Valley and Hollywood types, including Blood Diamond star Leonardo DiCaprio. The company acquired fine jewelry label Vray & Oro in 2017, and ever since, the brand has been designing high-quality jewelry using diamonds grown in the foundry. It dropped the Oro from the name, and it's now just Vray. My guest today on the luxury item is Mona Akavi, Chief Executive Officer of Vray. Akavi joined Vray as CEO in 2019, moving over from Diamond Foundry, where she was head of marketing. Akavi is an engineer turned entrepreneur and marketer who, prior to Diamond Foundry, founded and sold a company that developed one of the first digital marketing platforms for micro-influencers on Instagram. Mona was Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year in Canada for her work, as well as Canada's Top 25 Women of Influence. Welcome to The Luxury Item, Mona. Thank you, Scott. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you for joining me. You know... Over the last year, I've had a couple of guests on the show from the natural diamonds side of the business. I had David Kelly, who was the CEO of the Natural Diamond Council, and I had Rebecca Forrester, who was the president of Alrosa USA. So I figured, let's have a balanced platform here and bring on a leader in the lab-grown diamond space to talk about this rapidly growing trend. And I couldn't think of a better person than you, Mona, to, to join me on this. Thank you. Very happy to be here and chatting with you. So I think a great way to kick things off is if you could talk about how Vray started and how the parent company, the Diamond Foundry, came into being and how they work together. Absolutely, for sure. Um, Our parent company, Diamond Foundry, was basically born... Um, by our founding team that comes from an extensive solar technology background and experience. You know, uh, years and years of innovative research into solar electricity cells and uh, some of the most 
leading technologies in the world. And then we started studying the laws of nature around diamonds and how diamonds grow under the uh, under the ground a lot of the sort of conversation in early on was the environmental and human impacts and toll of mining um, on our um, you know on the earth and on social communities and we looked at uh, you know what we can create from a technology standpoint to recreate and basically create the same environment that a diamond is uh, Uh, formed under the earth. A diamond is born from a fury of heat and it's basically a carbon lattice that forms in, um, you know, an atomic figure that can then be polished into what we know of of a gem grade uh, diamond these days. So we started building a plasma reactor which is a proprietary technology made out of hundreds of individually precision engineered parts. Then inside that reactor, a plasma as hot as the outer layer of the sun forms. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where the diamonds grow. I- so it's essentially a lab grown diamond, the aside from coming from a mine, essentially the same as a natural diamond? Absolutely. The, ma- the makeup uh, of it? Yeah, absolutely. Atomically, chemically, um, it's exactly the same. It's 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 a carbon lattice that's formed and stacked in a, in a formation that's uh, you know turned into a rough diamond. And interestingly enough, each one of these rough diamonds grow uniquely as well, because during the growth process, one by one, the atoms stack on top of each other, um, and creating a unique structure uh, that then later on. Even uh, as you know, a lab-grown diamond can be graded and is now graded in the market the same way as a mine diamond with the same four Cs and the, uh, with the same grading standards by some of the grading uh, uh, organizations and bodies out, uh, out there. The FTC came out, I don't know if they, you know, just for the, I guess you know this, but for the consumers, mm-hmm. FTC came out and said a diamond is a diamond. And that's when many of the grading agencies started to also grade lab-grown diamonds. A uh, similar way you're looking at, now one of the other things that the industry started in putting into the certificates, especially when the momentum of lab-grown diamonds in the market started, and especially because when consumers wanted to know the origin of a diamond, is now a diamond uh, mined or lab-grown has a certificate that has all the four Cs, the color cut clarity and the carat weight, but it also has the origin where the diamond comes from. So, you know, you really have to look at that on the certificate because, uh, you know, the country of the origin now needs to be specified. And that's where we're very proud to sort of position Diamond Foundry on the certificate of the diamonds we use in our array jewelry. You know, and that's how uh, naturally we started looking at the market. Consumer market was um, loving this and wanting us to produce um, some jewelry and pieces that they can own these diamonds that are coming out from our plasma reactor. So that's when we shifted towards uh, Ray, um, our consumer jewelry brand, and started putting out uh, jewelry to the market and growing the side of the business. And that is now, um, you know, uh, that's now marketing our diamonds within jewelry collections uh, right. for engagement ring and bridal to consumers. And how is the process different uh, in the way Diamond Foundry grows diamonds versus everybody else? What's the, what's the, is the process different? So the technology is different. The process, uh, there's two processes in the market to grow lab grown. One is called CVD, uh, chemical vapor disposition, and one is HBHD, high pressure, high temperature. And we are 
using CVD method, but our technology is uniquely different from everyone else because we use hydropower as the input energy into our technology. And we are actually the first producer in the world that was certified to be carbon neutral. Our foundry is zero emission. So everything from uh, the, um, you know, the, the operation of the foundry and our reactors all the way to employees driving to the office, we've looked at every um, part of the process and the supply chain and our operations. And we've worked with a third party um, auditor and body and looked at uh, that impact. So, um, it, you know, simply said, that is exactly the difference we have with everyone else who's uh, sort of uh, producing lab grown in this market. So how long does it take to grow like a one carat diamond? Great question. You know, it takes about a few weeks um, to grow that within a reactor. Again, you know, each, uh, each diamond is growing uniquely. And after that few weeks, we take out the rough and cut and polish that within our own workshops. We work with, we have our own craftsmen, um, and, uh, you know, our, our craftsmen are fourth generation diamond polishers. And one of the things we've been really honing in on with Ray is some of the unique shapes and cuts. We cut for maximum brilliance, uh, which is definitely another differentiator in the market for us. Mm -hmm. And we've been able to create some unique shapes and really use them uh, within jewelry and allow our designers and our community of designers to really um, sort of break the boundaries of what they can do. Uh, we have all, over 14 different shapes on Vray websites, which is our main point of sale that we offer. It's very hard for a consumer to find that many different shapes uh, in one store or on one retailer or on one e-com. On the mine diamond side, it's not even possible to cut some of these shapes because it doesn't, the rough, uh, you know, the starting rough material doesn't exist in that quality and that level. So that's been an exciting area for us to sort of uh, move towards as well. Is there a maximum size right now that Diamond Foundry can uh, grow a, a diamond? You know, great question. We did, um, we have grown a 45 carat rough, um, which was the largest in the past uh, couple of years for uh, the all diamond ring. And uh, that was designed by Johnny Ive. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, we worked uh, with uh, Red and Bono's uh, auction. We polished it down to about seven and a half carats. So that's, uh, that's by, you know, but until today, that's a record, that, that piece. How do you, so how do you value a lab grown diamond? Great question. Similar ways. Um, so a lab grown diamond is also very much, uh, the, the value is driven by the market. Uh, similar to a mine diamond where it's attached to the Rappaport pricing model. Um, you know, it's driven very much in the past few years based on the consumer demand and what the consumers ha are willing to pay for it. Uh, for us, it's been an interesting time where um, on average, a diamond foundry rough uh, sells for 282 um, per carat. That's actually, that number is two times higher than the price per carat of some of the larger miners in the, in the, in the world. Hmm. And, uh, you know, that comes from consistently a better quality and larger carat production that we have, we've had, um, you know, and uh, it's been interesting to sort of play around with that value in the market um, and, and, you know, in, 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 in a way, it's more about what the consumers have been willing to pay. And we've seen, um, you know, on our website on Vray, we have pieces um, ranging from $400 all the way up to $70,000. And 
it's been interesting to see our consumers really adapting to lab-grown diamonds as a luxury piece. A lot of our um, our average order value for um, and this actually this quarter we just finished doing some of the numbers and our average order value for jewelry is at seven hundred ninety dollars, wow. our high time record, and that's actually twice the average order value of jewelry for one of the biggest luxury jewelry makers in the world. Wow. Um, you don't want to yes. drop any names, do you? No. Okay. <laughs> you felt that, but yes. <laughs> we do we do have some benchmarks. It's pretty clear who our benchmark is in the luxury market when it comes to Ray jewelry. Yes. Yeah. So you know the Diamond Foundry Diamond Foundry has a bunch of high profile investors, including Leonardo DiCaprio, who started, of course, Blood Diamond, um, which is a film about the mining industry in war-torn regions of Africa. How did he get involved in the company? Uh, you know, um, it, he heard about the company. Um, we are a San Francisco-based, LA-based, um, and uh, recently we opened up offices in Europe and in China. We have operations in Canada. So somehow um, Leo and his team heard about us um, and wanted to get to know more details and wanted to learn more. And got involved. You know, it's been he's been one of our longest uh, time investors for sure from right. the from day one. Yeah. Is he a, is he a hands on investor? You know, uh, he's been very much championing um, many of the things we do just because of the alignment of, of the value we have. Right. Um, you know, um, we don't generally talk about it, but um, you know what I can say: we don't talk about the investors themselves. Uh, you know, but have to clear it with every one of their teams. Of but <laughs> but what I can say is, um, Scott, we are so fortunate to be surrounded with such incredibly um, intelligent group of uh, investors around us, not only because of the alignment of value they have in terms of making the world a better place, making an impact on the environmental, um, you know, initiatives that's in the world, but also um, believing in the vision and the path we've taken, so it's it's right. been really lovely to sort of have that, and it's another you know it's a it's a, it's a it's also um, um, a vote of confidence. It's definitely made us stronger as we've seen growth with Ray and Diamond Foundry during pandemic. It's a vote of confidence to have some of these uh, um, you know uh, investors uh, with us. Yeah, and speaking of investors, in late April, Diamond Foundry chalked up $1.8 billion valuation after a $200 million investment by Fidelity. So congratulations on that. That's huge. So what is the money being earmarked for right now? Thank you. Absolutely. Um, you know, this funding came in just, um, you know, as the pandemic was sort of uh, tapering down. It really was um, a great, again, vote of confidence on the path we're taking and, and, and the growth and the potential that exists in the market and the industry seeing that. Um, and hopefully this paves the path for a lot more jewelry companies and industries to start using lab-grown. We're actually ramping up our production to two, um, to three to five million carats um, in our Washington state foundry mm -hmm. by the end of next year. Um, you know, that's uh, almost five times the production we've had over the past couple of years. So that's um, very much going to be the focus of the funding. Uh, the demand we have our, uh, right now for our products, for rough and uh, polished and our jewelry, is outpacing some of the supply we have. So that's going to be a big focus to increase capacity. Right. And also, once we get there, um, you know, this has been a great backing for our vision uh, because once we get there, our production 
uh, size will be one of the world's 10 largest, um, you know, similar to one of the world's 10 largest diamond mines. And, you know, not only this, pro this production will serve uh, the semiconductor market, but also very much uh, focused on growing Ray, our direct-to-consumer um, sustainable fine jewelry brand. We rapidly grew into China. We just, uh, over this year, we opened up in Europe and now our jewelry is completely available there. We're opening up some retail um, uh, spaces. So uh, this is very much sort of driven by the uh, growth we want to create with the funding. Uh, so I want to talk about you a little bit. You moved over the foundry to the CEO of Ray. What did you first set out to accomplish for uh, the Ray brand? Um, absolutely. We, you know, we've been very focused at creating uh, timeless jewelry with a with a, you know a modernity around it where we can create a, a luxury piece for consumers that they feel good about wearing every day and also use it for their life true moments uh, whether that's uh, you know a milestone or celebration and whatnot there was a, we saw um, a huge gap in the market where uh, you've got the luxury legacy brands that they're always there and you know they obviously demand and command a price point from consumers. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the lower end of the market with marketplaces, online marketplaces, or you know, larger retailers and whatnot that um, have stock rings or stock jewelry or in, you know, bulk jewelry that's not uh, customized or unique or the craftsmanship and qualities in there. And obviously, traceability is a big issue uh, when it comes to jewelry market. So um, my vision was very much to focus on creating a, a product and a brand that can really fill this gap in the middle, a product that's, you know, it's it's an investment piece. It's a timeless necklace or a piece that um, you can comfortably wear because it's high quality, it's recycled gold, it's very well crafted, um, but also it feels luxury. You, you feel that you're part of a, a you know, bigger story and you're part of a future, you're making an impact and it really aligns with your value. Um, you know, and it's not a piece where you have to wait for an occasion to purchase, but because the values of the brand and the company resonates with you, you're buying that piece. So this was really a big focus uh, when I moved over from Diamond Foundry to Vray. Um, you know, during the time of Diamond Foundry, where our focus was very much uh, educating the entire market about the lab-grown category and working with multiple designers and collaborating with the, the larger community of jewelry and designers to help them use lab-grown diamonds and educate their consumers. When um, I moved over to Ray, we really started working on honing in uh, jewelry and collections that can cater to more uh, engagement rings, bridal, and also jewelry collections for gifting. A lot of the work we're doing is gifting, but still continuing collaborations with some of the activists um, you know, in the market. We've worked with uh, Amanda Hurst, a very known environmental activist. Mm -hmm. We work with uh, Robin Marielle. We just put out a collection with them, and they are the top 10 Hollywood stylists of uh, the decade. They, you know, Our jewelry has been on the red carpet, um, actually, we were one of the first lab-grown jewelry companies uh, that was on the red carpet, mm. um, starting from a few years ago on uh, on the Oscars and Grammys and Met Gala carpet. Uh, these um, celebrities look at the piece and and they're looking for a sustainable 
jewelry option that looks luxurious that they can wear on a red carpet. And uh, we've been very sort of uh, fortunate to have that following with us. People like um, Angelina Jolie, Jennifer Lopez recently, Heidi Klum. Um, you know, uh, we've got Reese Witherspoon uh, constantly sort of uh, wearing us. Um, and uh, it's interesting that it's we're uh, also just just um, for an information, we don't believe in paid placements. Uh, because good. we don't think it's authentic exactly you know consumers are so savvy they will know they know you know they know exactly which which you know which actors or celebrities paid by which brand and uh, you know you can't we can't you can't fool consumers these days they're very very savvy and we believe in that authenticity of choice um, and these um, uh, you know these influencers and celebrities are choosing our sustainable jewelry on their own uh, and picking it when uh, they get presented with it and that's exactly where we want to be because we want to create products that are accessible, um, but they also feel extremely luxury. We'll be back after this break with more of my interview with Mona Akavi, CEO of Ray. Inbox Zero is a thing of the past. We're all inundated with email now, and it's no longer about responding to everything. It's about responding only to the important things, the messages that truly matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in. As messages flow in, SaneBox filters the distracting emails into your Sane Later folder, keeping only the most important ones front and center. See how SaneBox can magically tidy up your inbox and declutter your mind with a free two-week trial and get a $25 credit just for being a listener to the luxury item. Visit SaneBox.com slash luxury. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash luxury. And now back to my interview with Mona Akavi. And and so who, who's Vray's comp- competition? Is Vray's competition the diamond jewelers like Blue Nile or Zales? Or is it the other lab-grown companies like Brilliant Earth and some other ones? Um, you know, all of the above, um, and maybe none of the above, in a sense. We ha- again, we ha- we are we have been able to offer collections and jewelry um, for a big spectrum of customers. Anyone who's looking for engagement ring or bridal, all the way to gifting to uh, someone who's looking for a, a high jewelry special piece that's very unique and personalized. Um, they can uh, look at a lot of our collaborations and collections. Um, it's been interesting to be able to look at customers that are looking for these pieces in every aspect of the market. To tell you the truth, uh, it's more so for us, it's been really listening to our consumers and what they're looking for and offering that rather than looking at other brands in the market. Um, I'll give you an example. We uh, didn't, you know, in, during the pandemic over the past year, our engagement rings um, um, grew by 290%. That was how much that category of bridal and engagement ring grew. Mm-hmm. Um, driven from that, we started to create a lot more uh, unique offerings, offering unique shapes and diamond cuts and uh, you know different collections on uh, for engagement ring and bridal um, uh, customers. So for instance, the Amanda Hearst collaboration is, is inspired from her own wedding creating pieces that can be worn on a special day or, or they can be worn on any other day. And then the other kind of service that came out of looking at what our consumers want rather than what the competitors are doing was virtual appointments. 
we used to have virtual appointments where a consumer can do a Zoom or a video chat with a diamond expert on our team, learn about the diamonds, learn about our offering and jewelry. Just before the pandemic started, we saw a huge trend in this uh, as consumers were asking for this more and more. And uh, you know, we um, increased our capacity on that front. Uh, we expanded it all across US. Now we have uh, virtual appointments in um, Europe and in Canada. And that area grew for us by 500%. That's the amount of sort of, uh, you know, requests we're getting. So it's it's been a sort of great to sort of look at what the consumers want rather than the, com- uh, the what the competitors are putting out in the market. And China already makes the lion's share of lab-grown diamonds, and it's been all the rage over there with young consumers. How come Vray chose Shanghai to launch its first ever brick-and-mortar store instead of the U.S., where it was also, you know, kind of a growing acceptance here as well? Um, Absolutely. The Asian consumer is extremely savvy, and they're knowledgeable. They're all, they're usually the early adopters. And when lab grown diamonds started, um, you know, becoming a gemstone quality, they were very interested. There was a lot of press on that category. And also there was a lot of press about our company, Diamond Foundry. And, um, and we saw an opportunity for Ray to go in there and start offering some of our products so that consumers can actually get a feel and, uh, um, you know, try the products on. So it made uh, complete sense to open an office there. Then we opened up our first showroom um, because we saw the, the requests that were coming in. Again, all consumer driven for us. You know, we operate very much like um, a technology company. Um, you know, we, we innovate fast, we iterate fast. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't have um, uh, the the overhead that some of the traditional jewelry companies and traditional miners have. So we're able to actually um, offer these types of things faster than possible and 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 respond to the markets, uh, you know, markets requests and our consumers requests. We currently have a store in Shanghai. We'll be opening a second location in Xi'an uh, this year. And, uh, you know, Melrose was in the works. We have uh, our showroom in our first showroom in the U.S. Um, in Melrose Place in Los right. Angeles. Right. That was in the works, but unfortunately with COVID, we shut it down. It's going to open up again just early July. And uh, by end of year, we'll have our San Francisco location open as the second location in the U.S. Well, that's great. What did you learn about the Chinese consumer when it came to Lab Grown Diamonds um, since uh, you opened up in Shanghai? Absolutely. There, there was definitely a sense of education. There was a lot of education to go in there and them understanding the category. Uh, We focused quite a bit on that in the beginning. The fact that um, our uh, foundry is uh, the first to be certified carbon neutral, the fact that our jewelry is completely sustainable from solid gold uh, being used all the way to our packaging. Our packaging is one of the top lines in the market because everything in that package from uh, the outer box to the inner box is compostable and uh, and made of sugarcane materials, so completely organic. All of these aspects was resonating extremely well with the Chinese market. In addition to that, uh, one thing that really resonated was um, the value and the cost of the diamonds. So that was very interesting to sort of see. They, they really cared about the fact that they get these 
um, all the all the wonderful factors that matters to them in terms of the sustainability of the diamond and the pieces being a bit more luxurious, but at a reasonable price point. Um, and so we saw that uh, being a big thing for them. And also, the 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 interesting part was the Chinese market is very much more focused on our jewelry. So they love our collections. They love our collaborations with uh, celebrities. Um, and and um, you know have been a, a big proponent of our social following there, uh, consumers referring other consumers within the channels there. Right. How do you think that's going to? Do you think it's going to be different when you open the Melrose place in the U.S.? How the consumer is going to be different? You know, a U.S. market has always been very engagement and bridal focused for us. Because uh, the first thing they think of, uh, you know, in, in our consumers in the market are coming to us. And a lot of it is education. They've uh, they've already done their sort of homework. They've looked for us. They come to us knowing about us. It's interesting. And knowing about Labcone. If they don't know the Vray brand, they know about Labcone. And they come to us with that, um, you know, uh, conscious choice and decision versus in China market. It was uh, from the beginning, we had to educate them about the entire brand. In the U.S., uh, it, I think Melrose will be a lot more focused on um, engagement ring and bridal, and also a lot of gifting, yeah, lots of bridesmaids pieces versus, um, I, I mean, we're hoping uh, it'd be a great time for us to showcase a lot of our jewelry collections as well. Uh, but one thing that has been very important to the U.S. customers also our vertical integration. So the fact that from the moment our diamond starts growing to the moment it's in, in a ring or in the hand of the consumer, we control the entire supply chain. And that's been a great question. And they're usually asking about that. You know, where do you make the ring? Uh, where do you make the packaging? How does your supply chain work? Um, and uh, one of the major questions within the US market is the middlemen. As you know, you know, with the mine diamond industry and traditional jewelry, um, a diamond can exchange hands up to 15 times. And every time the diamond exchanges hands, the price is marked up further and further until it gets to the consumer. And unfortunately, that markup consumer pays is not necessarily going back to that community or, or that environment that that diamond was excavated from, um, you know, to repair and improve that community. So um, for U.S. customer, knowing the origin, knowing, uh, you know, the, the supply chain and the journey of the diamonds, and our pieces is has been a bigger question, and it'll definitely be a, a you know a major point of question in our Melrose location as it comes up. In Pandora, the, the world's largest jeweler sent shockwaves through the diamond industry when it recently announced that it would no longer sell mine diamonds, opting instead for lab-grown ones. And strategically, that kind of makes sense for Pandora to move into lab-grown diamonds. It's an affordable brand for young customers or most concerned about the environment and working practices. But despite the changing mindset, diamonds are still seen as a symbol of wealth and luxury. You know, last year, Louis Vuitton mm -hmm. purchased the second largest rough diamond in history for millions of dollars. Dior, Gucci, Armani, all unveiled fine jewelry collections with diamonds among them. So do you think these two trends can coexist? They can, absolutely. Um, I mean, we always encourage companies to take any step possible, whether they're mined luxury, whether they're lab grown, to become a lot more uh, transparent and uh, become a lot more, you know, and the steps some of them have taken is fantastic. Um, become more conscientious, give a bit more education to the consumers. 
Um, but these both trends can exist and will coexist. I mean, lab-grown uh, industry is still um, about only six or seven percent of the entire market in the world. However, the mine diamond industry, as you know, and reduced a little bit. So over the past year. Um, the volumes uh, reduced quite a bit to 110 million only of carrots of uh, mine diamonds in the market. So we see a trend, obviously, lab-grown being um, on the rise and on the growth because uh, over the pandemic even, um, the lab-grown market grew by 2% when it comes to production. But still, uh, both trends can coexist uh, when it comes to a choice for the consumer. It's more so... Um, the question here for a lot of the brands and these companies should be, where is the consumer's mind at? You know, it's, it's one thing to have the supply, but is the demand there? And we're seeing that demand shifting drastically faster than production. Again, uh, you know, we don't have enough supply for the demand uh, we're seeing. But also, if you look at the market trends um, over the past year, um, uh, Bain & Co. puts out a, an industry report, and they reported that about uh, 50 to 60 percent of the younger generation, the millennials and Gen Zs, are looking at sustainable and lab-grown options for purchases when it comes to diamonds. So I think the shift in the market is completely clear, and that's where the companies will have to sort of make changes. But yes, the both, both trends will, um, you know, as far as uh, uh, the next decade, they'll exist uh, simultaneously. Yeah. And another study that was out by De Beers, um, and they actually have skin in the game when it comes to uh, lab-grown diamonds, They their survey found that more consumers view natural diamonds as authentic. It was like 60%, mm-hmm. you know, natural, 6% for lab-grown, romantic, um, and as a product, uh, making making them feel special more so for natural diamonds than lab-grown. And this shows me that the value of natural diamonds continues to be about the emotions and feelings associated with the diamond and giving Mm -hmm. it to someone. So do you think lab-grown diamonds can ever capture those same feelings as natural diamonds? You know, it's it really depends on how, you know, you how the consumer views um, that feeling or, or or how do they define romantic or makes uh, someone feel special or how do they value as for many people you know knowing that uh, the diamond is not blood diamond or the origin of the diamond is uh, clear um, the diamond is traceable or uh, it's grown for instance with us it's grown in pacific west um, using clean energy and hydropower um, you know, these are some of the things that current consumers and uh, the market trend is valuing. So knowing that there has been no human and environmental toll, may, it makes them feel good about wearing our diamonds and feel special. So that, you know, the feeling associated and emotions, again, similar to market trends, that's changing. So absolutely, yes. Um, you know, people who didn't buy diamonds before were seeing them uh, buy from us because they were concerned about the origin and they felt bad about it and they, they felt helpless not being able to do anything about the mine diamond industry. So yes, absolutely, that feeling and emotion can change and lab-grown diamonds can become um, um, you know, a lot more romantic than mine right. diamonds from the way we see it. And, and you were actually talking a little bit 
earlier about the, the pressure that these diamond companies are under to be more sustainable and ethically sourced. And that's been growing mm-hmm. for a while. And many have actually stepped up um, and communicating about their sourcing, uh, sourcing like LVMH and Richemont and, and Caring. You know, they recently backed a system that will improve the traceability of colored gemstones. And even De Beers is using blockchain technology. So they're already kind of assuring more sustainable supply chains. So if lab-grown stones are all about appealing to consumers, making ethical and sustainable choices, isn't that what these large luxury companies are doing themselves? Um, for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it is, that's exactly why it's super important to, uh, for a company to be vertically integrated. But that, that's exactly why, um, you know, we're very well positioned in the market with having our own foundry and being able to offer that to consumers. We're uh, one of the only um, sustainable jewelry companies in North America that's vertically integrated. Um, But, you know, it's about creating that transparency um, for the market and education for the consumers. Uh, We were able to grow our diamonds, have them cut and polished in-house, set in our jewelry with our design team, it never leaves our hand. It's um, uh, there's no middleman in question about the origin. So the luxury companies moving this way is to me a must. It's not a marketing um, act. It's not a regulation requirement. It's not uh, you know an ethical choice. There is no question in the CSR department where um, com- larger companies are doing studies around whether or not it makes sense. To, to us and to the consumer from where we stand and see it, it's a must for these guys to improve the traceability or they won't be able to stay competitive in the market. So the Natural Diamond Council has been stepping up its pushback against lab-grown diamonds. Um, it complained this year to the uh, US National Advertising Division about Diamond Foundry's marketing practices, specifically claims of using certain terms that could create confusion about the origin of these lab-grown diamonds. So can you shed a little light on it and what was the outcome of this? <laughs> yes, absolutely. This topic, <laughs> our favorite I was, wa- topic. I was waiting towards the end to sort of bring that up. <laughs> Saving the best for last. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> yes, this was a big conversation for us, you know, uh, incredibly, incredibly, um, uh, you know, happy uh, with what came out of it in April. Um, just after uh, we were able to close the funding, NAD came out with a ruling, as you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's been really, really wonderful to see the whole industry, especially the National Advertising Division, uh, that is there to protect the education around every industry, especially diamonds, for consumers. And, uh, you know, again, at the end of the day, we want to make sure consumers have all the info they need to make the right decision and they can make the choice between the two. Um, But NAD came out and uh, really recommended a number of things that we've been saying uh, through Vray and through Diamond Foundry and working with our partners, um, whether jewelers, designers, vendors, um, and we've been saying that in the market, but that coming that information coming from national advertising division was definitely a step forward um towards um the fact that lab grown diamonds are um you know the future of this industry and here to stay they came out and said 
um, you know, um, some of the claims that mine diamond industry is making about the environmental impact of uh, lab-grown diamonds not being um, um, great uh, are not true. So they encourage them to and not advertise the fact that mine diamonds are better for the environment than lab-grown diamonds. There is no study on that. If anything, there is a lot more study around lab-grown diamonds being uh, better for the environment, especially ours, um, as uh, our foundry is zero emission. And also NAD came out and suggested that uh, mine diamond uh, uh, brands, they're not allowed to advertise and say uh, mine diamonds um, are scarce. There is no scientific proof on that, that there is scarcity in the market. Um, which what kind is, of changes did you have to make, the Diamond Foundry have to make? Um, you, you know what, to tell the truth, we didn't make any changes. It's interesting what, what we had to do. We've um, been labeling our diamonds as created sustainably all the time over the past many years. We've always said created sustainably, our foundry, certified carbon neutral, our foundry, diamond foundry, really mentioning the uh, the 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 origin where the diamonds come from, um, you know, we've been very proud of uh, advertising in every channel and all of our um, you know promotions about the fact that our diamonds are uh, created that they're lab grown. So uh, in, you know, we we didn't really make any changes um, in any sense. We made it even more. Um, you know, we started really labeling our diamonds as recreated uh, from diamond foundry zero emission and you know we added to the messaging that we had even a lot more in a lot of our campaigns which was really nice to see well did you have something you wanted to add one of the other things natural um so sorry the the national advertising division also uh recommended that uh, the mine diamond uh, industry can't say that a lab-grown diamond is less valuable than a mine diamond there is no uh, proof or, um, you know, industry measures for that. So that that was a really great, uh, you know, educational moment for all of us and for the consumers, again, uh, because there is no reasonable basis for those claims. It's all driven by consumer demand um, and the market. Right. Okay. So the final question, Mona, which I ask all my guests is the luxury item question. If you were stranded on a deserted island, and you can only have one luxury item. What luxury item would that be? It can't be any form of transportation to get you off that island, or it can't have anything that requires mobile service. So it's just you <laughs> and the island, maybe a couple of palm trees uh, and the sand. What would that one luxury item be that you would have? Oh, and I have nothing. I've, I don't have my suitcase or anything, right? N that's I've never gotten that. Oh, you know what, Scott? My skincare. Your skincare. My luxury skincare. <laughs> <laughs> this I'm assuming this is a sunny island. I need my skincare. Yes. Like for like it a would sunblock. It'd be too cliche. Yes, exactly. So yes, exactly. My skincare routine, sunblock and whatnot. It'd be too cliche for me to say diamonds. But if I had diamonds, I'd start designing jewelry to not get bored. But I go for my sunken. Yes, sunblock. <laughs> okay, good. That's a good answer. Mona Kavi, CEO of Ray, thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of The Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. 
I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.